and I'll just read it. Um, well, actually, verse 2, excuse me. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their God and ours. <clears throat> this passage is chock full um, of theology and as we said in the introduction Corinthians is not a theological treatise like Romans but uh, Corinthians the, the theology of Paul underlies everything that he thinks and says in the book of Corinthians so as we're looking at the practical issues that he's dealing with we're always trying to figure out what's the theology that drives him. And not to belabor these first couple verses, but verse 2 is, has a theology of um, the church that is vibrant, that very few people understand what is going on with the church. If they did, the church wouldn't be at such a low ebb in our country. So I'm not criticizing any one individual, but as a whole, people do not value the church in America today. Oh, they might value what we call the invisible church. Oh, people who are truly born again, some kind of nefa- like nebulous, people who are truly saved, and they talk about like a spiritual unity that we have with believers and stuff, which is true, but they don't value the visible church, meaning all those who are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the church. Now, we, we have disagreements with uh, who should be baptized. As Presbyterians, we think all believers and their children should be baptized, whereas like the, the Baptists would say only those who have professed faith may be baptized. But the fact of the matter is, it is uh, not a question of... Is the profession of faith, are we absolutely certain that the profession of faith is valid and the person is truly born again? It's just, are they baptized? Are they then included in the church of God? And so Paul is talking of the church at Corinth, and he's talking to all those who are baptized. If you've been baptized in the name of Christ, you are a member of the church at Corinth. Okay? So, He says, um, in in this situation, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's he's not even saying, well, there's this connection between the global church and then the local expression of that church. So he's basically saying, you people who are baptized in the name of Christ are members of the church globally. You're a member of the church of God. Uh, that happens to be residing in Corinth. And I don't know if you ever can remember back to Sandy, but he would always say things like, to the church of God that, that uh, meets on Bost Road or something like that. He'd be, he'd be trying to express that we're all part of this one people of God. Now, and this is a little bit of review from last week, but I, that's okay. The first thing he says that that the church is those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And the word there is is a verb, hagios. um, It's in the hagiadzo, but it's it's this word to make holy or to sanctify. Um, And there are lots of different ways that you can think of uh, how this word works. Uh, what is its meaning in this text? Uh, sometimes in the Old Testament temple, you had um, the altar had been sanctified. The priest had been sanctified. The uh, utensils that he used had been sanctified. All of them, right? They, they had been uh, even the temple itself was was had this ceremony where it was like declared holy, right? I mean, so the sanctified. So, so, um, so one aspect of make holy is to like set it apart for a sacred use. So maybe like um, 
oh, I don't know, my mom and dad had this uh, uh, wedding candle and that they got, uh, that they would burn every anniversary, right? You know, you get this big candle, you, get it, you, you burn it down. Well, that was just a candle. Not really any different than any other candle. But it was made special, made unique, set apart, because that was their anniversary candle. And so they, I remember they would always pull it out on their anniversary, and they would, you know, light it and let it go for an hour or so on their anniversary. And they'd take it and, and, and uh, put it out so you could use it for next year. It was set apart for a specific holy use. So for, if they would have came down and we had a power outage, you wouldn't, unless it was a dire death, life and death emergency, you would not have used that candle to just light your way to the bathroom, right? It's special. So like the temple, and it, it was sanctified, it was set apart for a special use, okay? So that's one way to think of this. Uh, it, it, I think it's probably the primary way, and it all stems from the back. Back behind that is the fact that God himself is holy. He is, he is special. He is... Uh, worthy of special care because he's so separate from common life, right? And so anything associated with God is then holy in this sense, right? Um, And now when we think sometimes of holy, we think of uh, moral character, kind of like righteousness. And that's not bad. It's actually a good thing to think that way. It has application to think that way. But it's, it's because your moral character is trying to imitate, in a human way, God's character, right? But it's actually secondary. So when you see this statement, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, based on some of the things I just said here, describe for me what he means by that. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been set apart for God. They've been per- they belong to God. That's that's excellent. Very good. So this this sanctification, whatever it is, enables you to enter His presence, which is the same thing that the priest, when he was sanctified, he was allowed to go into God's presence. There wasn't any, any uh, anatomical difference between. Uh, uh, Aaron the priest and Joe Schmo, who's just a regular, you know, uh, Israelite. But because God had set him apart, he now has the freedom to go into there, right? So that's good. And so um, there's something uh, unique and special that 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 God does. It's not something inside of you that you do or something. Because in this in this verse, it is those. And and the uh, verb is in the past. It's like a perfect tense, but it's a passive tense. So it's not those who have made themselves holy, those who have been sanctified. So someone else has done this to them, okay? There's been something that has happened to them, and I would argue that in baptism itself, that's when they're set apart. That's a ceremony, that actually sets them apart as holy um, so that they can enter God's presence. Um, It's a passive participle, meaning that this is not just like an action in the past, you were sanctified. This is more like you have been sanctified. In other words, the sanctification that occurred at that moment in the past has continuing effects into the present. Okay, so that's, it's like a state that you have now entered into. You are now a holy one, okay? So he's talking about those of you who have been sanctified, how have they been sanctified? You could say, we could say it was through the instrument of baptism, because that's what marked them. But in the text, it says they have been sanctified in Christ. So you are actually in Christ. You know my, my what I love to always... Uh, say that I'm always trying to think of myself as in Christ because this is the Chi and this is the Rho, the first two letters of Christ, that Mike 
by himself no longer lives, who lives as Mike in Christ. That's who lives. Because the Mike in Christ has been sanctified. The Mike apart from Christ hasn't been sanctified, has no right to go into God's presence. But the Mike who's in Christ now has been set apart as holy, and therefore I have a right to be in God's presence. Okay? You're seeing how this is all playing out. So, uh, certainly images in baptism, right? What's the symbolism of baptism? You're washed, right? So that's making you clean. So that's the image, that you're a clean one now, okay? So those are helpful um, <clears throat> to think about that the blood of Christ and the washing with water are what sanctifies me, okay? It's, this is a little bit different than justification. Justification is declared righteous, right? Uh, like a legal understanding. But this is, this is clean and pure so that you can be in the presence of God. There's a, there's, it's slightly different between justification. And in this passage, he could have said those uh, the, the church of God that is in Corinth, uh, having been justified in Christ Jesus. Could have used that term, but he doesn't. He uses sanctified. Okay? Now, when we think of sanctification, we usually think of the progressive sanctification. Like it's something that you're growing in sanctification. You're learning to put sin to death, and you're, you're growing more and more like Christ. But that's not what's being said here. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It is a done deal, and, and theologians call this definitive sanctification. It occurs at the same time as your justification. It occurs, you know, at the beginning of your Christian life. It is God washing you so that you're clean and can come, setting you apart as holy so you can be in his presence, okay? Now, then you get to the phrase in the ESV that says, called to be saints. And if you remember, this is why we, how we ended last week. If you hear, if you see, and this is the NIV and ESV's uh, kind of rendering, called to be holy, that means that, or called to be saints, saints and holy, same word. Uh, if this is the, that way, it almost sounds like you are not yet a saint, but you're called to be a saint. But if you look at many of the other translations, some of them are called as saints, saints by calling, the, um, the Young's literal translation is just called saints. And it doesn't mean verb called saints. That's why I got this right here. This is a noun, and this is a noun. So, uh, in Greek, this clay toys, if it, was, if it was by itself, it would mean called ones it's a noun the called ones you understand that's just like it's not it's not like joe called so-and-so it is that he's describing himself as the called one okay now what they're then add to it and you can see the ending here in greek even if you don't understand any of the grammar you can see that these endings are the same so this is like an adjective describing these, these two fit together, this noun. So this one means holy ones, and this one means called ones, but smashed together, they're the called holy ones. That's who they are. And Paul thinks about Christians this way. You know how we always say, oh, we're sinners. You know, that's who we are. Paul would say, absolutely not. You are the called holy ones. Because what is more definitive of who you are? Your practice or God's call? Which one is more definitive of who you will be? So think back to God when he created the world. When God spoke the whole creation into existence. His, by the word of his power, he said, come to life. Or let there be light. Or, and his voice defines reality. So think about you before God called you, 
were sinner in Adam, fallen. That's who you were. And then God says, no longer. Let there be a saint. And his calling defines who you are. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? So when he says to the church of God in Corinth, he's talking to a group of people of which they could actually identify a number, how many of them have been baptized into Christ who are members of the church, and he says, you are the called holy ones. Now this is very, very important because Paul is going to rip the Corinthians left and right over sins that they're committing. Okay? And so, but he's starting with this very foundation. <clears throat> It's, it's like the assembled ones. The church is the assembly. Yeah. Um, and, and they are related because the way that you're assembled is you're called together. Right? So, um, so this, this whole understanding of holiness as something that God actually, uh, by his word, by his voice, calls into being... Is, is, um, is foundational to the whole book. Um, I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, but turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. If you have this picture of holiness, and it's not just uh, practical progressive holiness... Then, when you get to the issue in 1 Corinthians 7, you had a husband and a wife. Who knows when they got married? They probably weren't Christians before they got married. And let's say the wife becomes a Christian. So she's no longer just wife, she's wife in Christ. Okay? So, she is wondering, now that she is clean... Now that she is holy, and now that she sees herself as someone in whom the very Spirit of God dwells, it's like she is a temple. She's wondering, and it could go both either way, husband, wife, either way. She's wondering, can I still be, live in the same household with my husband? Because he is unholy. He is unclean because of his unbelief. Right? And so, Paul, what do you think Paul's answer is? She makes him holy. Yeah. So she makes him holy. Now you think, how in the world can that be? And this is really amazing because in the Old Testament, if something that was unclean touched something that was clean, it was the reverse. The unclean made the clean un unclean. But because she is in Christ, and Christ is the, you know, uber holy one, you touch him, and you're going to be clean, okay, so, and I won't go into all this in detail, we'll do it when we get to chapter 7, Paul is not saying that the husband is saved, or even that the husband is progressively influenced by his wife, and he's a better person, that's not what he's saying, okay, he's basically saying, no, there is a principle here, that because I dwell in you as the Christian, this one spouse in the home actually, in some mysterious way, sanctifies the whole home. Okay, now, and then he says, he says, um, uh, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be what? But as it, as it is, they are holy. Now, if he means like progressive sanctification and character, that's not, there's nowhere in Paul's meaning here. They have been called holy because of this one believing parent, so that the kids are now holy. Now, of course, people say, this is one of the bases why we do baptize our kids, because we believe that baptism is the outward sign of having been called holy. You say, well, why don't you baptize then the husband? 
because he doesn't want to be baptized. Right? <laughs> you can see how that works, right? Um, so, but the idea is the kids are holy even before they get baptized because of their connection with the, the believing parent. Okay? But if you don't have a picture of holiness that is more than just moral character growth, then this, none of this makes any sense. And if you want to talk to your Baptist friends that are adamant about this, just take them to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, what is happening here? And, and if you, they just don't have the category of being made holy, declared holy, and yet that not be something that is um, um, internal regeneration, change of character stuff yet. That makes sense. So, okay, back to 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> yeah. Absolutely, I think that is the similarity. And in this situation, you are made holy because you're in Christ. You know, so, and now I don't want to d- deny the fact that the wife what, what was brought into Christ because of her faith, right? Faith is the means by which you enter into Christ. That's, you don't just go to somebody who's not believing and say, oh, you must be in Christ. No, it's those who are believing. Faith is the mechanism by which we are united with Christ. So that's, I mean, that's, we're not denying that at all. But you can't say then that the husband is made holy because of his faith or that the kids are made holy because of their faith at that time. It is only the faith of this, this woman right here. So Paul, you know, Paul, whether or not, and I'll still acknowledge, whether or not the Baptists are right or the Presbyterians are right, Paul is saying every person who has been baptized is sanctified in Christ Jesus. Are you following me there? That's the point. Um, and that will become very, very important. Now, holiness, when we think of progressive sanctification and growing to be more and more holy in our life and character, defeating sin, that should be the fruit of being in Christ. Does that make sense? So, there's, so it's, it's not that progressive holiness is not a part of this at all. Paul will get to that. But his foundation is, you are, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, because this is who you are, you should be living in light of who you are. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say that one more time, as briefly as you can, but that's good. You're right. So this could be where maybe the Catholics um, take that and kind of run with it. And, you know, i got to get my baby baptized right away. He's getting ready to die at, at birth, and we have to do this. And, and we're um, they put so much emphasis on the outward sign mm-hmm. to say that the outward sign makes the inward True. Okay, so, excellent. So, at least a few errors here. One is they, they believe that the, that the sign um, affects it. If you notice in the 1 Corinthians 7, Paul doesn't even mention baptism, and he still says the kids are holy. Is that right? So, but the Catholic idea is if you don't actually put the water on them, then they're not holy. See how they're looking, they're looking at the sign as that which, it, that's not the way Presbyterians look at it. So we would, you go ahead. It doesn't mean that they're saved or that they necessarily will, but that they are under the protection and nurture of the covenant until such time as God does whatever he's going to do. Okay, good. So, so you're... you're let me finish all my errors and you'll understand this. So first off, it is the Catholics mess up in the sense that they think that the actual work that the priest does 
actually enacts it. And they would even say, even if they messed up and the parents weren't believing or whatever, they just baptized them, it's still good. You know, and we would be like, no, that's not the way it works. Um, but the, the next thing is, has to do with assurance. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I've talked with a lot of Catholics. But, but the whole concept of purgatory is, if you have been baptized, then you're guaranteed to not go to hell. You could spend a lot of years in purgatory, but you're not going to go to hell. Okay? So, um, I, so, in other words, because you've been sprinkled, because you've had water on you, you're good. You're going to heaven. And, and there may be a small category for like a heretic that's completely condemned, kind of like Luther, <laughs> you know, but, but there's not much of that. Well, they're just they're they're taking passages like this that you're now a clean one. You're called out. This has been done. You're in Christ. That's so they're they're and as Robin's saying, they're pushing it to an extreme. I believe Presbyterians believe that if you're truly regenerate and you're elect of God, that you will persevere in your faith. You'll never fall away. But I don't believe that the Bible gives baptized persons, even though they're called to think of themselves as clean. I don't believe it gives them the right to just say, I can walk in utter rebellion to God and still think I'm going to heaven. I don't think it gives that assurance. The Bible says that assurance of salvation, uh, yes, you're trusting in the promise. That's first. And that might relate to what we're just talking about. But two, there is the, um, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. There's some evidence of the Spirit working in your life. There's some conquering of sin in your life. And if you have no uh, love for God, no conquering of sin, then you don't have a right to think that you're truly going to be ready for heaven. Paul, uh, Jesus says, uh, you said, Lord, Lord, and yet I never knew you. Those kind of passages, right? So even as a person who's been a pastor for years and years and have tried to walk with God, when I feel the pulling of my old nature, I don't say to myself, yeah, I can go however I want to do. I'm going to heaven. No, I say things like, hmm, if I want to have my sin, and that's what I want to do, and I don't want to repent of it, then I have to fear that I'm not going to be saved in the end. Like, there's a real healthy fear of that. And I think that the Catholics kind of would give you a fear of purgatory, but I don't think they'd give you a fear of eternal damnation because they look at assurance a little bit differently, okay? Thirdly, um, I think that, these are the two main ones, but like, I think that um, the connection between what we call definitive sanctification, which is uh, something that God just says over you, you are sanctified, it is, it is like linked to um, regeneration. So, and this is the, even though they're not exactly the same thing, it's kind of like when we say those who are justified alone, by faith alone in Christ alone, that's a grace that God gives, but it's not alone in the Christian. When somebody is declared holy, there is, and I know this doesn't always, it's not always the case because you've got many people in the church who look like they're Christians, but they're not really inwardly Christians, but these two are Supposed to go together. This union, you're being united to the God of the universe. So how could you not be changed? And this is where Paul says that if you're truly in Christ, you are no longer a slave of sin, but you're a slave of what? Righteousness. So, so I don't want to, like, in talking about this is the called sanctified one's Go to the extreme of saying that my progressive sanctification doesn't matter. It does matter. But I don't want to, I want to see that as the fruit of regeneration and definitive sanctification where the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me. That's the source of this. I think a lot of times Christians think, oh, I'm forgiven. Now it's up to me to start walking with God. And that's not Christianity. And Paul doesn't think of them that way. And you're going to see You'll see him work this out in the book of Corinthians. He, um, he'll challenge people's assurance. 
He'll point them to their, their regeneration, and he'll also point them to the fact that you have been called as saints. So, that answer your question, Robin? But yes, uh, Uh, turn over to Ephesians 4 for a moment. Ephesians 4, 1. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see how he's saying that? Like, you need to live in light of who you are. If you were made, just tomorrow, somebody just appointed you president of the United States of America. You'd have a learning curve, but you would be trying to live up to the calling that you have been given. You, you following that? That's, that's what Paul's saying. You, yet, don't, you guys are scumbags, but try to do better. He's saying, no, 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 you've been called to a position that is like throne of the universe, seated with Christ. So strive to live up to that calling. See how that's different? So, okay. Look at verse 3. Um, Mary, you want to read that for me? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, very simple, right? Probably read it a hundred times. Probably like, oh yeah, who cares, move on. All right, think about this. So, um, is this meaningful? Or is it meaningless? Is it just Paul saying, hey, hello, you know, hope everything's well with you? Or is this like super meaningful? What do you think? Because he says it in almost all of his letters. It's very meaningful. He's basically saying grace and peace. Okay? Is he saying that those are um, already in there? Or is he wanting them to increase? What's going on here? Right? So it's already things that are theirs, right? It is, it, they have a right to this. It's a privilege. But he's also, it's also kind of like a prayer where he's asking God to continue to dispense it, right? So it's both of those at the same time. Um, so, uh, Lee, you talked to me, asked me Sunday night a while back, explain for me peace, right? Remember that? Uh, so I'm going to maybe ask you a little bit here if you remember any of that. But let's start out with grace. What do you think he's talking about here with grace? What's his meaning? So it's mercy, patience, forgiveness. Okay, so, so like, you be gracious to others, part of that? Yeah, 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 I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not, yeah, no, I, I think that's true. If he's asking grace to them, then they should also be giving grace to others. I think that's a good application. Um, grace in this situation primarily means the favor of God. Yes, his generosity and not just general generosity, but who is this grace for? And the sanctified. I'm just going to say the sanctified. So, because it's the holy ones. You know, and he's not even, he's not even pinpointing. He's not back there saying that, well, I don't know if uh, Barry's believing. But Isabella, you are. So, Barry, you don't have a right to this, but Isabella does. He's saying, if you're baptized in the church, grace to you. God's favor to you. His 
his generosity, his goodness is yours. It's like you're swimming in the ocean of God's favor. Absolutely. All, everything, as Clark would say, everything comes from the government. That's the only way we understand any of this is God's covenantal. Because Jesus Christ has earned God's favor, you are in Christ, so you have that favor. And so he's, he doesn't just take it for granted. He doesn't just, oh yeah, we have it, forget about it. He, every letter, grace to you. Because everything in their Christian life is founded upon the fact that they have the favor of God. If God is working against you, could you ever accomplish any of your goals? <laughs> so the only way you're ever going to make progress in any of your goals is if God's working with you. Right? Now, you may wonder if God's working with you because you still fall so short so often. But the fact of the matter, Paul is saying grace to you because God is working for you. So notice that this grace is coming from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's putting the Father and the Son on equal terms here. Uh, meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ, he dispenses it because he's on the throne of heaven. He earned it through his death on the cross. All those kind of things. But it's, he doesn't want to distinguish that from the loving fatherhood of God. Right? So it's this grace is coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I might argue that the grace itself is the Holy Spirit. So, um, so I would say, when he says grace to you, it is primarily grace for justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's the favor. It's not whether Peter gets a new car. I mean, it could have some implications for that if God wants him to have a new car right now. But it's, this is the primary thing. God is pouring out grace to you that Jesus has earned because you're in Christ to work for your justification, sanctification, and glorification. It would seem that it also supersedes the law. If you were accountable to the law, that would be no grace. The accountable to the condemnation of the law, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the law as a covenant of works has been removed. The law as a standard of righteousness is obviously there, but not as a covenant of works by which you gain God's favor. Because you have gained God's favor, communion today, it is the cup of blessing. We drink of the cup of Jesus' blood because that's what procures our blessing. That's what matters to him. Okay, so, so Paul's saying grace to you. It's not just a John MacArthur... Uh, uh, you know, grace to you. But that's a very good name that he chose. Grace to you is a very good name. Okay, so now, and peace. Now, what are we going to say here about our peace? What type of peace is he talking about? So, number one, reconciliation. If you have the favor of God, that means God's anger towards you is no longer in existence. You have peace with God, right? Right. So, uh, God, self, we're going to talk about that today in the sermon, how hard it is for us to have peace with ourselves when we feel the weight of our sin. So, yes, it's very good. Um, also, though, and this is Lee, do you remember anything we talked about? This bigger Hebrew understanding of shalom? Yeah, that's okay. So, so think of the entire universe in harmony. Think of perfect wellness. Think of everything being as it should be before the curse. Everything being harmoniously perfect and well. That's the peace. That's the shalom of which Christ and the Father are bestowing upon his people. Now, do we experience that every day of our lives? <laughs> no. <laughs> but is it nice to know that that's what God has purchased for you in Christ? You called saint ones, this is the grace and peace that belongs to you. So how do you say 
I would call it, uh, I would call it the new heavens, new earth. That's, you mean like everything being perfect as it should be. No signs of the curse. No, no discord between brothers. Everything being in perfect wellness. Your body not falling apart. Uh, relationships perfect. Uh, perfect holiness. All of this together. That's like the wellness. Paradise. There you go. That's a good, there's a good one word for it. Thank you, Benji. Paradise. Huh? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's right. There you go. Yep. Absence of evil. Perfect. Yes. No, no inner struggle with evil within your old heart, your, that kind of thing. All that's gone. So grace, and, and I, I, there's a church in our presbytery that's called Grace and Peace, and I think it's a good choice. Grace is the driving force of your Christian life. And peace is the goal of your Christian life. Both have been purchased for you by Christ and come to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that in your daily life. This is who I am. This is what God has done for us. Uh, one last thing before we move on. Turn to John 1, 16 and 17. Uh, for from his fullness, whose fullness are we talking about? Probably the Father, maybe the Son. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's the Son. For from his fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, um, it's not like a denial that the Old Testament law was a good thing or a good standard. It's just saying that if anyone was ever given any favor of God, it always came through Jesus Christ. He's the only way you can get the favor of God. You never got the favor of God by giving animal sacrifices. You may have done the animal sacrifices in anticipation of the Messiah, but you, 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 the, the actual favor of God... And the grace that comes from God always, whether it's an Old Testament saint, New Testament saint, on, always comes from Jesus Christ. He is the only fountain of God's favor. So, <clears throat> pretty fun, right? Luke 1, Christmas... Uh, Christmas text. Uh, to, he came to give light to those in sin and darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Right? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's the peace. Everything right. Now, people get it wrong in Christmas. They think if you just sing the songs and ignore the evils of the world, then Christmas will be great. But that's not the way it works. But it is true that Jesus is promising us perfect peace in him. And that's very important. You will find it nowhere else. You will go in this world and you will find pain and suffering and oppression and evil. And you'll live your whole life and you'll think, what is God doing? And you have to keep remembering that grace and peace come through Jesus Christ and him alone. He's your only hope. And you have to remember that you, through your baptism, through faith in Christ, are God's holy one. That's who you are. Now, I would also say that God is preparing you. This will come out in our sermon today too. God is preparing you for an eternity of dwelling in his presence. That's what he's doing. Doesn't that sound good? Like, why do we care so much about worship? Oh, because we just gather here and we, Mike says a few things. No, it is like preparing you to enter into the presence of God. That's what you're doing. God says, come into my presence. You say, I'm a little frightened by that. And he says, keep on coming. And you come in. And so when you get to see him on the judgment day and you're really petrified because you've seen your sin completely, he, you hear his voice going, come into my presence. And you go, okay, we've been doing this my whole life. So I'm coming in now. 
All right, questions or comments before we go into the four through nine section? Yeah. So, I love, I, I, I think perspectives are very helpful. From God's perspective, no one can ever fall from his grace. <laughs> because when God elects somebody and chooses to save somebody, he will always give them the grace that will enable them to persevere in their faith, and they will continue to the end and be saved. So God loses none. He is 100%. Everyone, every person that he just goes out to save, he saves. And we'll see that on the judgment day. So in that sense, no one could ever fall from grace. But if you're looking at man and you're looking at the visible church, those who are, have a right to call themselves the, the, the holy ones, absolutely people fall from grace. They are, the people walk away from the church all the time. Unfortunately, far too many of our young ones do that, right? But lots of people fall away. They, you might say, well, they never had the true grace. Well, that's fine. They never really were united to Christ. But, but they, every outward sign they had of it, and they had the right to th- think of themselves as in Christ, all those kind of things, um, and they do fall away often, and it happens. And if you don't have that kind of, uh, under, if you think that, If you think that you could truly fall away from God's grace, then you make God out to be weak. If you say that that, um, no no man who's ever in the church could ever fall away from God's grace, then you kind of make perseverance meaningless. Right? And it just makes your faith meaningless. Your faith matters. Um, When I meet with people, say Dot Wilkerson, She's a godly saint, man. She sat right up here with Patty Richardson. and Well, Patty might even be a good example. She's still alive right now. Um, I don't go into my meetings with Patty, and I didn't do it with Dodd either, thinking, you're saved. Who cares about your faith right now? I go in thinking that I am somehow being used in a small way by God to help encourage her to continue believing in faith to the end. That's what you're trying to do. Otherwise, why life is meaningless. Like, we're trying to keep walking with God to the end. That's what we're trying to do. So, so yeah, you don't want to go one side or the other on this. Um, but from God's perspective, no, you can't fall away. From our perspective, yeah, people fall away all the time, and you should be afraid of it. <laughs> you just not want to fall away. So... <clears throat> that is yes, it is. Yeah, because then you know that the power is in God, not in the person, right? Yep. Other questions, comments? All right, let's read 4 through 9. Uh, Benji, you want to read that for us? Christian's coming with the mic. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so this is basically like a prayer of thanksgiving, typical in Paul, that he does this. Uh, There's only a couple books that he doesn't do a prayer of thanksgiving, and he has to be really, really mad at the people to do this. Like Galatians, he doesn't do, he's mad. He's just like, you foolish Galatians. So he forgets this prayer. But most, most of the time he does give this prayer. Um, And it just so happens in this one, that Paul takes uh, different topics in this prayer that actually will get fleshed out later on in the letter, which is kind of interesting. So notice um, in verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. 
So, uh, speaking and knowledge are going to be a big deal in Paul's letter. Okay? Um, He also, um, in verse 7, says that you are not lacking in what? Any spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts are going to be an issue. Okay? Um, He is going to uh, talk about, in verse 8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to talk about the uh, return of Christ and the resurrection. That's going to be an issue in there. Uh, that's verse 15. Spiritual gifts are chapters 12 through 14. Uh, remaining faithful to the end. So perseverance. That's going to be in chapter 10. He's also going to talk about unity. Right off the bat, he's going to talk about the unity of all believers. So you can see how he's bringing all of these up uh, at the beginning of his section. He makes a distinction between speech and word, doesn't he? Doesn't really define how they're different, but he makes a distinction between those. Um, so, what's the difference between word and knowledge? Hard to kind of define that, right? What would you, anybody want to take a guess? Okay, good. And particularly, so she said on the one hand, the word is how you express the knowledge, and the knowledge is like you're possessing of it. And almost take it the opposite direction. So, so the word has been spoken to you. Now the question is, do you have a true inward knowledge of that word? Right? I can speak the truth to Christian, but does it get down into his heart such that he actually knows the word that was spoken to him? Sure, yeah. But I would even say that even in Christian's heart, it's doctrine. But it's doctrine embraced in his very being. And not just doctrines on a page. See the difference between that? Uh, All right, just give me some comments or questions on this prayer of thanksgiving before I go into any more of the details. Things that that stick out in your mind that you might have a a question of or you think it's saying... Yes. As we grow in Christ, it's it's an enriching, and that is an encouragement to me. Mm -hmm. Enriched. Yep. Good. Mm-hmm. He gives thanks for all of them, doesn't he? Which is going to be a big part in the Corinthian church because they're full of divisions. They want to separate out. He's like, I'm, I'm thankful for all of you. <clears throat> Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I will. Just a second. <laughs> it's actually a big part of what I want to talk about here. So, no, no, no. That's that's what I want you to do. That's that's good. You're that just confirms to me that uh, what I saw in the text is something that you would have a question of. So, yeah. Um, anything else? Just things that stick out. Mm-hmm. Spiritual gifts. Some of you may be coming to this class because you really want to talk about spiritual gifts, right? Yeah, it's, it's great. So the word is um, 
Charisma. That's what, yeah. Um, Charis is a gift, right? And charisma. It's where you get charismatic. So when you hear charismatic gifts, that's a redundancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what is the connection between those two? Mm-hmm. 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 And the reason why they say it's a spiritual gift is because they see it as a gift from the Spirit. Contextually, not because the, the Word is there. So... Mm-hmm. Being fully equipped, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what place in Acts? It could be. In tongues. That's that's always the question. This is this is where it is, right? <laughs> Start saying, is he so is Paul saying, is he referring to Speaking in tongues and prophecy, you know, what's he talking about here when he says that all of you are enriched in every way? Or is he talking about the greater gifts of faith, hope, and love? It's hard to know at this point, right? Paul's, Paul's being purposely vague to try to, like, get you to, you know, he's, these are the, I'm thankful for you guys, I, I'm thankful that you have all these gifts. Oh, but these gifts are what's dividing you, so I'm going to have to crush you later on and tell you that they shouldn't be dividing you and root out your pride and tell you there's a better way. But, oh, you're enriched in every way by your speech and your knowledge. You know, he's like, he's like, he's not puffing them up, but he's, he's telling them thankfulness, um, and he's trying to unite them. I give thanks to God for you, right? Uh, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus... Um, that's good. I think that's great. Um, That's right. And there's, it's very clear. That's a, you're just bringing up the, one of the things that I think has been a dilemma for me over time. What does it mean to stand before God guiltless on the day of judgment? Because does that mean, you know, I've lived for God, I don't have these regrets, and my behavior has always been guiltless? You know, it's like, hmm, I'm not sure I'd ever make it on that day. <laughs> um, but but there, it is, has to be, I don't want to completely say that it has nothing to do with myself, because otherwise, what are you striving for? You know, so, but at the same time, it can't, be, um, it can't be your own lack of guilt. So it has to be who you are in Christ. So, all right, so we're, we will pick up again in, in 4 through 9, and I'll uh, walk us through this passage. I'll walk us through the testimony, which is really important. We're going to talk about, as we go through, uh, the difference between testimony and um, mystery, which is going to be kind of fun in here. Um, but, yeah, you guys are you're doing you're good. So just keep meditating on it. Come up with questions that you have. I want, to, I want to make sure that I'm answering your questions and not just telling you what I think the questions should be. Um, but, yeah, we'll walk through this, so. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for communion, and thank you for the word of God, which we will enjoy uh, as we are called into your presence, as the called saints. In Jesus' name, amen.